0: So I need your help with something this morning. It's all right if we have a little bit of interaction today. I want you, in choir and orchestra, I want you to participate in this as well. I want you to think about a word or a phrase that you used to use, so it used to be part of your regular vocabulary, but you don't really use that word or phrase anymore. All right, let let me give you an example. Remember when people used to say, that's the bomb, All right, remember that? Not a good word to say. I know when we've got a full house in here. Um, but, But I want you to discuss, take 30 seconds and see how many words or phrases that used to be popular that we don't use anymore, all right? So talk to the person next to you and see how many you can come up with in the next few moments. All right, did you come up with some? Did you come up with a word or a phrase? As I was trying to think of these words that we don't use any longer, most of the words that I, that I tend to think of are words that, that had to do with when you were tricking someone. Do you remember when you used to say something and say, hey, I think you're really cool? Not. You remember that? That used to be kind of a cool thing. Or then we say, hey, well, well I really think that, that Chick-fil-A's a terrible restaurant. Psych. You remember that one? That was, that was one. Help me out with this one. There's an argument going on with my family um, the last few weeks, and I need you to prove that I'm right, okay? Because um, it never happens in our family. Um, Lindsay and I were trying to teach Noah about a word or a phrase that we used to use when we were teenagers that's not used anymore. And I said there was a, t- a particular word, and Lindsay said, that was just your geeky friends in high school, probably your youth group that came up with it. It was the word trick box. Anybody you ever heard that word before? Raise your code. Raise, everybody raise your hand and say, you, no one rem- <laughs> I saw one hand back there. We're in church, so you, I saw about 50 hands back there. I thought y'all would be a little more compassionate. It is Easter Sunday. I'm going to start using that phrase on you guys so I can make it real. The sermon today is going to be five minutes long. Trick box, Right. <laughs> We'll be out of here by dinner, I promise, okay? One more word that we used to use, really, I think it was probably in the 80s, but it's kind of come back in style today, is the word radical. Remember that word? We still use it today, and what is it that we're trying to convey if we say that something is radical? It means that it's revolutionary. It means that it absolutely turns everything upside down. It's an extreme change. A radical event is an event that takes place in our life, that it takes the current system where we are and it flips it upside down. It takes everything that we know about a subject and it totally changes that. We've all experienced a radical event, if not multiple radical events in our lives. When we got married, the birth of a child, the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's when we moved or when we started a new job. But there was something that happened in our life that when it happened, it totally flipped our world upside down. But friends, I'm here to tell you this morning that there is nothing that brought more radical or extreme change to the world than the event that we are celebrating this morning, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the most radical event that this world has ever experienced. The Apostle Paul, when he was talking to the Corinthian church He said this, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. That's how radical the resurrection is. If it didn't happen, we're still dead in our sins. If the resurrection didn't happen, if we're worshiping a dead Savior this morning, then more than anything, what we as followers of Jesus believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about salvation, it is empty and meaningless. But praise God, the resurrection is true today. And we're going to study about that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible and you're in the sanctuary, there's one in front of you. For the rest of us, the the words will be on the screen, so it's quite all right. We're going to read about what happened on that resurrection Sunday morning. We know that the bottom line is that the resurrection of Jesus, it changes everything. Let's read from God's Word how this occurred, and we'll start at John chapter 20. I'll be—excuse me, I'm actually going to begin it in chapter 19, verse 38, and we'll read um, through 20, verse 10. It says, "'After these things Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body.' Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. May God bless the reading of his word. I love the fact that John, who is the author of this book, that he includes the names of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. He said that they were there in a public fashion, identifying with Jesus. We know that Joseph of Arimathea, that he had been, according to Scripture, he had been what they called a secret disciple. But now, when Jesus is being laid down and he's being put in the tomb, he's there identifying with Jesus in a very public fashion. And then we've heard the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is famous from chapter 3. Most of us at least know, if we don't have memorized, John 3.16. Nicodemus was a smart, intelligent, religious, respected leader. In fact, Jesus called him the teacher of Israel. And Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3, explaining to him, here's what it takes to have eternal life. Here's what salvation means. But Nicodemus leaves unconvinced. He doesn't make a commitment to follow Jesus at that time. But here we see Nicodemus at the end of Jesus' life, publicly Identifying here with Jesus. Now, by publicly identifying with with Jesus, both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they knew that there was potentially great danger in identifying with Jesus. After all, what did they just do to Jesus? They crucified him. They murdered him for what? For rebellion, for blasphemy. And now they are saying, this is the man that we follow, he is the one that we believe. But the question that I have as I read through that passage is what must have taken place in their lives for Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who were private, silent, behind-the-scenes followers of Jesus to now they are willing to be up front and to publicly identify with Jesus. Well, I think you have to go back to Jesus' words as he was making his way on Palm Sunday into the triumphal entry. If you were here with us last Sunday, it's a a verse that we looked at. It's in John chapter 12, verse 24, when Jesus said this on the day that he made his way into Jerusalem. John 12, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. See, Joseph and Nicodemus, they are the first fruits of of the graced harvest that will occur after Jesus' death. And another thing that I find interesting as we read in this passage is that as as John and as Peter, as they enter into the tomb, did you notice how great of detail that John gives about the grave clothes? He goes into great detail. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. I want you to look at how John describes the grave clothes here. Says so then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. You say, Okay, Blake, I get it. The linen cloths were there. What, what's the big deal? Well, friends, to understand the significance of what John is trying to convey when he's writing this, you've got to understand a little bit about Hebrew culture and tradition that was going on during Jesus' day. See, the the Hebrew tradition was that a master, when he was being fed, that a servant would come and he would meticulously set the table for his master. When everything was set perfectly, the, the servant would then go in the background where he couldn't be seen while the master would eat his food. At any point if, when the master was done, he would take his napkin, he would wipe his hands and his face, and then if he wadded up the napkin and he put it on the table, that was a sign for the servant that I'm done. You can now come. You can take my plate because I'm finished. But if any time the master wiped his hands and his feet, he stands up, and he folded the napkin and laid the napkin next to the plate. The servant would not dare come and take his, his plate. You know why? Because that was a symbol. I'm not done yet. I'm coming back. I'm not finished yet. Friends, look again with me at verse 7. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but what? Folded up in a place by itself. Friends, the master Jesus, he didn't leave it wadded up. The face cloth, it was there folded up. Why? Because he's not done. Because Jesus says, I'm not finished yet. I'm coming back again. Don't miss the significance of what John is trying to teach us there. So we've seen that the life and the death of Jesus, that had a radical impact on Joseph of Arimathea, and it had a radical impact on Nicodemus but we also have looked at some of the insight that John has given us about the grave clothes. But friends, there's more here. I think that one of the greatest things that we can take away from this life-altering passage is that death has been conquered. Friends, this was the death of death. Death has already had a funeral for those of us who are in Christ. See, before the resurrection... People in Jesus' day, they would walk around fearful, not sure what was going to happen after death. They knew that death could strike just like it can today at any moment. But what Jesus did here was he disarmed death. He showed us what awaits those of us who are his once we pass away from this life. The author of Hebrews he goes as far as to, set, as to tell us that Jesus' death, it destroyed the one who has the power of death, Satan himself. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. Now, let me be honest with you for just a moment. I know this won't make me the most um, beloved pastor in the city, and that's okay. Because it's the truth. The truth is, we're all aging. Every day when you wake up, you are one day closer to your death than you were on the day before. Now, we can try to buy products, we can have surgeries to make us look like we're not aging. We can do the anti-aging cream, whatever we want to do. But the truth is, we are all going to die. 100% certainty that is going to happen in our lives. But what concerns me here is how many people are literally terrified of death. Now hear me on this. I'm not saying that any of us should long for. We can't wait or that we're excited about dying. But the good news that's found here in this passage is that because Jesus conquered death, we can live not just for this life, but we live for the next life, for our eternal life. Our hope as believers, our hope as followers of Jesus Christ, is not found in anything that this world can provide. Our hope is found in heaven. My question is, when are we as followers of Jesus going to start living like we believe that? When are we going to stop trusting in the things of this earth for our happiness and instead say we are living, we are longing for a greater day when all will be made right, when we will be one with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul put it this way. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. So many people today are trying to find happiness in things, stuff. But friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have trusted him for your salvation, then you know that Christianity, it's all about giving up our stuff in order to pursue, in order to find true joy, true happiness, true contentment in Jesus and Jesus alone. Friends, stop trying to find true happiness in this world. It will only leave you disappointed. It will only leave you wanting more. You're never going to have enough things that are finally going to make you happy in this life. And instead, we are to start living for the things that are unseen. Church, because Jesus conquered death, death no longer has a claim on us. We are free to live for things that will last. We are free to live For eternity. So let's keep reading here in John chapter 20. I'm gonna start in, in verse 11 where we left off. It says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, one word, Mary. Mary. Do you know this is the only time in John's Gospel that Jesus refers to God as my Father and your Father? This is also the only time in the Gospel of John where Jesus refers to the disciples as his brothers. Why is that important? It's important because when Jesus rises from the dead, the position of the disciples is radically changed. Now they are his family members. See, Jesus' sacrifice for their sins, his resurrection, along with their trust in him for salvation, it took them and it turned them into a family where now God is their father and Jesus is their brother. Church family, listen to me. It's only when God does a work in our hearts. It's only when we call out to Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. That and that alone is when we become a child child of God. Not everyone has this relationship. In the first chapter of John, John makes this extremely clear. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Church family, hear me on this. Becoming a child of God Is conditional it's not automatic it is a gift given to those who will call upon the name of Jesus who will receive him as Lord and Savior surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Savior is 100% necessary for salvation now of course we know that it is not even possible for our salvation apart without Jesus first paying for our sin how do you pay for our sin through a sacrificial death on the cross. And that death was an acceptable offering, accepted by God so that we could be forgiven. Friend, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, don't miss this. We don't become God's children based on what we do. No. We become a child of God based on what Jesus has accomplished for us on our behalf. Our confidence in our standing before God, it's not based on our actions or lack thereof. And friends, we should be thankful for that because we fail miserably to keep the commands and keep the law of God's commands. But our confidence in our standing before God is that in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with what? With his blood. That is the confidence that we have as followers of Jesus. Because God accepted Jesus' gift of atonement, it is that gift, it is by that fact that God accepts those of us who will call out to him and say, Lord, I'm trusting you, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins, and I want to follow you as my Lord and Savior. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. And the gospel is good news, and the best part of the good news, friends, is that Jesus won, period, We know the end of the story. As we sang a few minutes ago, death was arrested and my life began. Eternal life is ours for those who have placed their hope and trust in Jesus. But I don't want to end the message here just talking about the events that took place on that resurrection Sunday morning. I want to make sure be beyond a shadow of a doubt that every single person here in the sanctuary and listening in the rock, that you don't leave here without knowing exactly what it takes to obtain this salvation that is only made possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Chances are we live in the South. You've heard the story before. You've heard stories about Jesus and what a great teacher he was and the miracles that he performed and he was a great example for us and you know that he was born, that he died on the cross and that he came back to life again. But my fear is that we stop there. We stop with just head knowledge and understanding what happened but we don't continue reading in John chapter 20 to see that Jesus tells us exactly what it takes to receive eternal life. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture comes from John chapter 20, verse 31, where it says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Please hear me on this. Don't zone out. I'm almost finished. I promise. Believing Is not just wishing. Believing is not just saying I understand or I hope. It's not like saying, Well, I believe that my friend's gonna tell me the truth. I believe that my team is going to win. No, 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 no. Genuine belief includes two things. Genuine belief includes confession and commitment. What do we need to confess? First, we need to confess our sins. You cannot become a child of God unless you first admit your need for forgiveness. You call out to him and say, God, I ask you to forgive me for all the mistakes that I have have, have done that have caused me to earn eternal separation from you. But confession goes further. If we are to be be a, a child, a son, a daughter of God, we must confess that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the promised Savior that was prophesied about all throughout the Old Testament. We must confess that Jesus is God's Son. Hear me on this. He's not just some great teacher. He's not just an example. He's not just a philosopher. He is God, period. We must confess that Jesus rose from the dead. You cannot be a child of God if you deny the resurrection. So that's what we must confess if we are to be a child of God. But what is it that we must commit to if we are to have this relationship? We must commit first to a, notice this next word, a relationship with Jesus. We commit to this relationship with him, and then we make a decision that we are going to embrace the teachings of Jesus, even if it's not what we like, even if it's not what the world says, even if it's going against culture, that we are going to follow him. Because if he's God, then I don't care what else the world says, he's God, he gets to make up the rules, and I'm going to live by his rules. Thomas, who's often referred to as Doubting Thomas, he's our example here. He's our example of this confession and commitment to follow Jesus. Listen to the short confession and commitment that he makes after he sees Jesus alive for the very first time. John 20, 28. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Let me ask you, each person in the sanctuary on the rock, can you say like Thomas, Jesus, you are my Lord, you are my God. I'm not asking if he's Lord and God. He doesn't need your approval for that. He already is. I'm asking, is he your Lord? Is he your God? See, if you're here this morning, you say, well, I believe, I know that that God, that Jesus is God's Son. I know that He died on the cross, he, he came back to life, and I believe He's coming back again. Listen, you may know that, but that doesn't make you a Christian. No, what you have to say is the Son of God was born for me. The Son of God died for me. The Son of God was raised to life for me. The Son of God is coming back for me. Friends, that is the essence of Christianity. It's not arrogance in saying that I believe that He only died for me. It's saying that I understand that apart from Jesus coming to be born on this earth, apart from Jesus forgiving me of my sins, apart from the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, I don't stand a chance of eternal life. What I'm so afraid of in the South and what we call cultural Christianity is that Christianity has just become another label that we add to ourselves. Like we can say, "Oh, I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican." I'm an Auburn fan. I'm an Alabama fan. And then we throw that in. Yeah, I'm a Christian because I believe that Jesus uh, was born. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. No, friends, that's not the question I'm asking you today. Do you believe that Jesus died in your place? Do you believe that apart from Jesus forgiving you of your sins, you don't stand a chance of standing before him? Do you call out to him when you pray to him, and do you call him your Lord and your God? If so, have you committed your life to him? Have you told him that, God, I'm going to do the best that I can to obey your commands, knowing that I'm going to fail miserably every day and thank God for the grace of Jesus that forgives me even when I fail you, but I'm going to seek to honor you with my life each and every day? Can you, along with Thomas, say with full confidence, Jesus, you are my Lord. My God. friend, salvation is available for each and every one of us today. Jesus has done all that needs to be done in order for you to receive him as your Lord and Savior. He can't do anything else. He's done all that he can. He gave us the very best that he had by giving us a son. The question is, Will you confess him as your Savior? Will you commit to live for him today? Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you today, and we thank you that we can be called a son or a daughter of yours not because of our church attendance, not because we helped someone out when they were in need, not because of the good or necessarily the, the bad that we've done, but we thank you that the blood of Jesus is enough. We thank you that the sacrifice of your son gives us the opportunity to confess you as Savior and to trust you and to ask you to come into our life so that we might have forgiveness, that we might inherit eternal life. It's a free gift, but we know it wasn't cheap. Lord, I pray that if there is someone here today that has not trusted you as their Savior, that today they would lay aside their pride, they would lay aside their good efforts, and today they would simply come before you and say, God, I need your forgiveness. I know that I've messed up. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that my best laid efforts, my best plans are worthless compared to you, a holy God. But I thank you for making the price, for paying the debt that I owed with, the, son, with the, the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And today, the best that I know how, I ask Jesus to come into my life, to forgive me of my sins. And I trust him and I ask him to be my Lord and my Savior. Lord, I pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would touch hearts even now. And that we would not leave here today without knowing for certain that our eternity is secure because of the hope and trust we have placed, not in our efforts, but in what Jesus accomplished for us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that the tomb is empty. And Lord, the tomb being empty tells us that no matter what we have going on in our lives, no matter what pressures that we have, when we leave this room, that we know that we have hope because our hope is not in anything that this world can offer us, but our hope is in that we will be reunited with you, that we long for eternity. We long for heaven, where you will make all things right. We thank you for the victory that we have today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.